Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm RJ Hamming, your host. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, David Zoll and Sarah Condon. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence or opposite playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. All right, we're back. Welcome to you, RJ Heyman. How was your time away? It was great. We were in Utah for about a week or so, just doing some skiing and stuff. There was not a ton of snow there, as, as people may know, like Utah, Colorado, there's nothing apparently. Further north, there's more snow, but just a great time with our family and nice to be with my teenage boys who always want to be out with their friends, but they were forced to spend time with us and play uh, Rummy Cube and other family games. And it was a great time. So thanks for the week off. And I'm back refreshed, ready for 28. I can hear it in your voice. Yes. I can hear it in your voice. How about you, Sarah? What's going on? Not much. Just, you know, three-day weekend, two days, closed in with the kids. We did a little mermaid puzzle. Ooh. It was 800 pieces, and my husband did most of it, so oh, very wow. impressive. Yeah. That's a big little mermaid puzzle. Yes. It, but, um, <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, it's funny because our daughter, who's three, has never seen the movie. It's surprisingly hard to see The Little Mermaid. You cannot get it on Hulu or Netflix or Amazon. I even tried to buy it and I couldn't like, you've got to physically mm. get the DVD. I have it on DVD. Do you? You okay. can borrow it. I actually look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? I mean, pretty much know the whole thing by heart. Yeah, so RJ watched it last you know. night. I could sing yeah. it for you. I could sing it for you right now. You want me to do that? No. Are you sure? <laughs> Betcha on land. They understand, bet they don't. Reprimand their daughters. Or I'm done. Our daughter, okay. our <laughs> daughter just calls it because she doesn't really know what it is. She just calls it under the sea, like in this really off pitch. So anyway, she just kept singing that on repeat. She's gonna get a killer patois going. I can already see. <laughs> the scene was, you know, Ariel like on the rock. You know, it's that like she's. I don't know when. Exactly. I don't know how. <laughs> We've unleashed a monster. We've unleashed a monster. <laughs> Let's jump in to the ocean here of articles. Um, terrible segue. But RJ, I was glad you mentioned the skiing thing because this first one's about humble bragging. And I just feel so badly for you, you know, with your bad uh, conditions out there in Colorado. It's just, it's I appreciate tough. that, Dave. Thank yeah. you for your I mean, sympathy. It's, it's so hard. There's a new study that came out from both the UNC and Harvard together finding what we all know to be true is that humble bragging makes people like you less than straight up self-promotion. The research says that there are two distinct types of humble brags. The first falls back on a complaint. I hate that I look so young. Even a 19-year-old hit on me. While the second relies on humility, why do I always get asked to work on the most important assignments? About 60% of the humble brags people remembered fell into the complaint category, and all of the respondents of this study said that regular bragging was better on both counts because at least it comes off as genuine. If you want to announce something, they say, go with the brag and at least own your self-promotion and reap the rewards of being sincere rather than losing in all dimensions. Better yet, get somebody else to wingman your boasting if 
someone brags for you, that's the best thing that can happen to you because then you don't seem like you're bragging. And if you can, they caution to cut humble braggers a little slack because you may be doing it yourself without realizing it. You know, it's hard, guys, being this aware of my humble bragging. I, I, I need <laughs> to be forgiven for being completely clear about when I'm humble bragging and when I'm not. But seriously, how, how do you deal with humble bragging? I mean, I do a lot of it. I'm very aware of that. But I also, I mean, it's a thing that like you can hear yourself doing it and it's just as bad as hearing other people doing it. I remember a couple weeks after we had had our daughter, I was around a neighbor, you know, suburbia is like ground zero for humble bragging. And I was in a neighbor's house. And so I have our three-year-old son who's like all over the place, newborn daughter. And you know, it was like classic mom, right? Haven't showered in like 17 days, you know, just barely keeping it together. And she looked at me, she's like, wow, like, this is like really hard on you. I was like, yeah. And she's like, you know, I could still keep it together after two kids. Like I had all their clothes organized by seasons. And then she goes, that's why God gave me four children to humble me. And I was like, I'm going to hit you with my car. You know what I mean? It was like a hard thing to smile through. So there's a lot of that though. I think like in mom world, there's a lot of like, Oh, I don't, you know, my kid, well, there's a reference in here to like, doesn't like to read so good at math. I mean, I hear that kind of stuff all the time i say that stuff sometimes you know like yeah i was skewered by this article because it made me realize things i'd said in the past that i shouldn't have said and need to stop saying my favorite humble brag is that you know unlike you you salt and pepper monster dave's all i don't have a mm. single gray hair on my head i i really mean it when i say i'm looking forward to getting a little bit of gray hair because i feel like people might actually respect me a bit you know at, mm. at 40 plus years of age but the usual humble brag is like i got card at the liquor store again and usually it doesn't it doesn't go over nearly as well as i think it's going to so i just need to never ever say that again but i would miss no. your youthful glow well thank you RJ. i appreciate that i it's, it's uh it's the cold cream isn't it funny like how we don't <laughs> in the mockingbird sort of thought of like self-improvement how we have those things we say out loud and they never go over well and we just keep saying them just keeps yes We're like yes. oh wait i've done this before it didn't go well the first time i'm gonna say it anyway it's like now i know why people don't like me I, I figured, <laughs> yeah. this is such a helpful such a helpful article i like that meme um and it's true being humble shows how confident you are bragging only shows how insecure you pretend not to be and I think about this in terms of my relationship with my wife. I'll come home and I'll report back to her about some accolade that I received or some compliment or some nice thing that happened. And she'll immediately sort of stop and look at me and she's like, what's wrong? <laughs> she'll want to know, why am I feeling insecure? Why do I feel like I need to tell her this right now? And you know, the degree to which I need to share it and impress her. She knows me well enough to know that I'm probably not in a good headspace. And then I just sort of shut up because anything that's going to come out at that point is insecure and she loves me still. Tell her so. that she, it's because she withholds encouragement. I think that's that would go. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> No, Kate would love that. You're Kate would so love that. good at withholding yeah. encouragement. What's what's that? That's a I, humble I, knows, insult, you know. Funny you say that. Like I think about the times I come home and do that with Josh, and he'll just be like, "That's really great, babe." Like suddenly I'm like four again, and there's like a teacher standing over me. He's like, "You colored so nicely." Like he's just like trying to like. He's like, "I'm gonna give you affirmation because we both know like you actually don't need to bring home a resume to me." You know, justification. Right. Once again. Right at work, in our mm. lives. 
Speaking of which justification and the courtroom of life, we have got to unfortunately talk about Aziz, our master of none, Ansari. And, you know, I wonder, I knew we were going to talk about this today, but you sort of wonder if someone's listening to this six months from now, will they even remember what we were talking about because things are coming so fast and furious. I tend to think they will, but still, those of you who don't know, there was an article published sort of from babe.net detailing a sexual encounter with Aziz Ansari, the comedian and actor, and it really paints him in a very negative light, but it's caused an eruption of think pieces and people sort of talking about the Me Too movement, have this jump the shark, what's going on, and a lot of debate sort of from fellow women, not really men, and that's why I RJ, when I told him we were going to talk about this, he said, do I have to be on this week when I go back to, to uh, Utah? Yeah. Um, well, my favorite article, or the one ones I've come across so far that I thought was worth speaking about was by Elizabeth Brunig, who people won't be surprised. She's always great. It's in the Washington Post. The headline is, the Aziz Ansari debacle proves it's time for a new sexual revolution. She says that this new article written by this girl was immediately taken as evidence that the Me Too movement has gone too far and has begun to reinforce the view that women are infantile and helpless. But then she gets to what she really wants to say when she says one of the principal outcomes of the sexual revolution was to establish that sex is just like any other social interaction. Nothing taboo or sacred about it. No big deal. Whereas in previous generations, sex wasn't an ordinary matter and thus didn't need to be treated with ordinary manners. Becoming just like another social interaction, it was then subject to everyday pressures of etiquette, which can be just as binding. For example, if a guest were lingering too late at a party or a lunch partner boring you or an acquaintance pestering you to borrow your umbrella, you wouldn't scream or shout or slap them. You likely wouldn't abruptly leave. You would likely try to be subtle and transmit certain signals without a confrontation. You would likely go along to get along. You would likely grin and bear it. You would do this because that's what we do in workaday social interactions, and sex is one of those now. The trouble... Brunig writes, is that sex is clearly different, as the lasting unhappiness of so many women attests. If acknowledging that endangers one of the achievements of the sexual revolution, then so be it. We ought to appreciate that sex is a domain so intimate and personal that more harm can be done than in most social situations, and that given that heightened capacity for harm, we should expect people to operate with greater conscientiousness, concern, and care in that domain than in others. Now, before I throw the ball as fast as I can to you, Sarah, this reminds me me deeply of a post we ran a couple of years ago by Scott LaRouse titled Sex is Nothing Unless It's Everything or Sex is Everything Until It Isn't, in which he basically said that we we're living in this very strange time where sex is seated very casually and there's no big deal. It's something people do. There's nothing special about it unless there's a slight bit of coercion involved, in which case it's the worst thing that's ever happened. And that is a kind of a whiplash that makes it very difficult to process these things. Now, I, I have my own thoughts, but before before I go on any longer, I want to hear from you, uh, Miss uh, Reverend Condon. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about this. I'm trying to be graceful towards grace, I think, which is not easy. Who's grace again? Sorry, grace is the pseudonym for this woman who has this account with Aziz Ansari. I read this article, which I thought was great that you sent. And I loved the point that she made that, you know, the sexual revolution sort of wants to make sex just like another kind of human interaction and that it's not. And she calls for a greater conscientiousness, which I totally 
totally agree with, but where I needed her to push it towards the end was, so we should know people before we get naked, you know, on their kitchen counters. And she didn't say that. What she said instead was it was just sort of another moment of, you know, so, so men need to deal with themselves. And I appreciated what she, you know, that women are sort of constantly being told that we need to evaluate who we are and we need to stick up for ourselves. And there, she's right. I mean, there's a slew of articles out there like that. Needless to say, it's obviously not working. If we keep calling for this and it keeps happening, I mean, you know, when I heard these stories about Louis C.K. or about Matt Lauer and, you know, I mean, the fact that these guys first move is for you to walk in and them not have pants on or whatever. It struck me that this is a whole generation of women who just keep walking into these situations and not walking out. And David, you had talked about a piece about how, you know, violence is often sort of the next thing. And that's perhaps why women are not saying no and are not getting out of the room. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that, yeah. Yeah. Heather Haverleski was sort of saying that, I think she tweeted to say her belief is that porn and Tinder have polluted sex in ways that older generations simply don't understand that her experiences weren't perfect, but they were nothing like what these ladies are describing. Most men tried hard to please the pushy men were dismissed and didn't get violent over it. Obviously that's a very narrow window. She says, And she admitted to getting frustrated with stories where women never say, get out of here. She says, but I am hearing over and over about things turning dark and violent when they do do that. So this is a fascinating thing. Why have men, I mean, if we're, if we just go down that path, let's just theoretically go down that path. Why have men gotten worse? Yeah. I mean, is it porn? Is that it? I mean, if, because we've had the sexual revolution, right. And everyone's liberated now and they're having all the good times they want. Why are men getting worse? I mean, based on what we're hearing from these women who are going out on dates with guys in their twenties. I mean, it's, there's all sorts of like, is it a byproduct of the sexual revolution? Is it things on the internet? Is it the ability to date whoever you want, whenever you want? I mean, the fact that this is on sorry, is fascinating, right? Because, you know, we've read his book and he sort of talks about dating culture and how awful it is. Mm -hmm. And here he is in the middle of it with it documented for his mama and his daddy to read about. So RJ, man, why are men getting worse? (laughs) No, honestly, I'm thinking it's, it's reminding me of a podcast I listened to. I I only listen to podcasts because I'm in the car in Houston all the time. And when I try to read, I fall asleep. But what was the context? It was, it was a very strange context. It had something to do with sort of, it was the aftermath of Charlottesville. It was white supremacy. It was this group called the proud boys. But there was one guy, he was, he was an African-American sort of fitness guru or something who'd gotten involved in this organization. He was an older guy, like maybe 50s or 60s, who was spending time with all these 20-something white men who ended up sort of being Trump supporters and things like that. He saw this too. He said one of his big things was no more pornography. And actually, and, and sorry to use this word, like no masturbation. Like they weren't supposed to do that because he recognized that these young men did not know how to talk to women, had no idea how to talk to women because they'd been so used to all of their social interaction being over social media, texting, their impression of women is over pornography. So maybe that 50, 60 something African-American male working with these conservative 20 something white males is seeing the same thing that Heather Haverleski is saying, and maybe guys are getting worse because they're just on their computers and their phones all the time and they're not. Because let's face it, it's mm-hmm. terrifying to talk to women. <laughs> it, it's terrifying to talk to women. And if you can 
get your quote unquote needs met without ever actually having to deal with the fact that someone else is a human being who might have feelings. Why wouldn't you do that? It's easier. It's less humiliating. You know, so this guy was trying to get this older guy was trying to get these younger guys out there to actually talk to women and fail and learn skills, <laughs> you know, learn skills for actual relationships. So you were telling me the other day about your initial impression when you watched the HBO show Girls. What was that again? Yeah, I, I'd said that. And this goes back to not the Havaleski tweet, but the Washington Post article about Yeah, in some ways, it's just a more conservative approach to human nature and sex, right? That human nature isn't mutable, that you can't just decide not to feel badly about something or not to be injured by something just because you don't think you should be. When I started watching, yeah, the Lena Dunham girls, it seemed to me like it was about some young people who were constantly harming themselves and then wondering why they hurt. You know, it's like they were cutting themselves. I'm like, wait, why am I bleeding? It reminded me also, you know, my family, my boys and my wife and I like to sort of binge watch uh, sitcoms from the 90s and 2000s. So we've seen like, you know, Seinfeld, Mac in the Middle, The Office, Parks and Rec, whatever. We've also watched Friends. In one of those seasons, you know, all the friends start sleeping with each other. There's Ross and Rachel, there's Rachel and Joey, there's Monica and Chandler, there's, but they all are still friends. They all get along. We sort of had to sort of our boys like, hey, just so you know, this is not reality. You know, when groups of friends start sleeping with each other, there are consequences. You know, I've talked to my teenage boys about that, about that if and when they become sexually active, there's not just physical consequences, you know, procreative consequences, there are emotional consequences and that not everyone processes that type of thing the same way. And it may be that the women that they are with process it in a much different emotional way, that that being sexually active has emotional consequences. And then, I mean, since we're talking about grace and Aziz and everything, you know, I read that 3,000 word, babe. I I couldn't quite read every word. I sort of skimmed it because it was painful. But I ended up, uh, as I thought about more, I just felt, especially, and then as I also read the follow-up piece that Babe did where they um, showed all these tweets from all these other young women who were like, oh, it happened to me too, happened to me too, happened to me too, happened to me too. I just felt really bad for her. I felt like, you know, because she said she was looking forward to it. All she really wanted was to be loved, cared for, and made to feel like a worthwhile human being. And that's not how she was treated. She left there feeling empty. And then my next thought was, people just need to get married. (laughs) You know, that as crazy and conservative and Christian as it sounds, maybe it is actually true that there's no such thing as casual sex, that that's an oxymoron. And the only place that sex really makes sense is in the context of a committed long-term relationship because people are disasters and they're going to make mistakes and misinterpret one another. And, but that if you can be, if you're in a relationship where you know someone and there's an emotional connection, that there's a little more space for grace and mistakes and any reform. I don't know. I don't want to get too church lady on this, although RJ has a little bit already, but, um, (laughs) but I, next time on focus on the uh, next time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so the phrase that keeps coming into my head and I, you know, Dave and I have like, like called back and forth over the past couple of days because I keep wanting to write a piece about this and keep not writing a piece about this is what is secular sin anymore? Like, what does that look like anymore? Because it does baffle me a little bit when I've seen all these think pieces that no one has suggested. I mean, take religion out of it, take the church out of it that like, 
I mean, think about like all the vulnerability work that, that like is popular in like pop culture right now, that getting naked with someone who you do not know, who you've only encountered through a screen, which is not just this woman with a celebrity, right? Which is like most people dating right now is they first get to know each other through a screen that that's not somehow inherently wrong and going to lead to bad things. I, I just, I, you know, it baffles me. I mean, it really, I mean, of course, like as the church, you know, we have this whole, you know, God knows in Mississippi, I heard plenty of like, you know, saving yourself for marriage stuff, which inevitably led to a lot of pregnant teenagers, but it baffles me that no one is willing, like, it's not, I hate to use this phrase. It's not politically correct to say jumping into bed with someone with the first hour of meeting them is not generally going to go well. Didn't you mention on Facebook that you were going to write about it and someone yeah, got in touch with you? Someone what was got that? in touch with me who I have not talked to in, gosh, probably 20 years. You know, I sort of know her through the internet and she wanted to caution me about writing anything that would portray Grace, this woman from this babe piece, in a negative light because she said, I've actually had this happen to me recently. Like I had sex with a guy and it moved faster than I wanted to. And I didn't really want to have sex with him. And I felt terrible about it the next day. And she actually used this phrase that I haven't heard before, the gray area of misogyny. And I just sent her a message back and was like, I mean, from what I understand, you've recently been divorced. You were trying to raise children. You're trying to find a job. Like you're in a pretty vulnerable place right now. Like, I'm not sure this is misogyny so much as it is like, you're in a place where like, going out and like hooking up with a guy is probably not going to be a good idea for you. I'm not sure that's ever a good idea for anybody, but it's definitely not a good idea when we're in pain. Of course, that's the interesting thing here, right? Like Grace says in this piece, like she's just looking for someone to love her. And we have to wonder what is Grace's life like right now? I mean, when do people often enact this kind of behavior where they're like, so lonely Mm -hmm. and desperate? And, you know, I may be skewered for saying this. And I definitely read like, Aziz Ansari's behavior in the article as being aggressive and gropey and like super awkward. But I also read it and thought of him and I was like, dude, he seems really lonely and sad. Like everyone just seems lonely and sad. And they're hoping that basically in the midst of what is an incredibly sinful moment, secular or religiously, they're hoping for kingdom results, right? Like they're hoping that like some perfect moment will come out of this. And that's just not gonna, I'm not going to use a four letter word happen. Yeah. I mean, when I read this stuff, I, uh, yes, part of me goes to is like, aha, you know, we told you we Christians have it right. You know, I wish you want to feel sort of vindicated and, you know, you kind of want to let it speak for itself a little bit, but clearly it is more complicated, you know, as, as to use the Facebook phrase, it is very complicated. And what is going on is this um, incredible, strange mix of, you know, of a little bit of Puritanism, a little bit of, you know, decadence mixed with social media, mixed with vulnerability, mixed with loneliness. Loneliness. You know, the UK, by the way, appointed a minister of loneliness this past week. Mm. Um, I thought that was Jeez. incredible. Um, but at least they didn't euphemize yeah. it. <laughs> you know, if we did that, I'd be like, minister for community. Right. You right, know, right. like, yeah. 
Well, what I was thinking about is that, yes, the media is slowly getting into this business of feeling like it's its job to uncover all of hypocrisy in the world. And, you know, that is newsworthy, I suppose. But you wonder if the, where are all these non-hypocrites that they're trying to exonerate? Because there aren't any non-hypocrites and there never will be. But then you get cynical and you do want to really speak to people like Grace as well as Aziz and not use the moment to bolster yourself. By the way, I do think the generational thing is older women really do see this differently. And if you read the think pieces, I mean, and I went down the rabbit hole last night and basically it's very divided between people who are under the age of 40 and people who are over the age of 40 see this very differently, not just the French. And I do think the porn thing has an enormous amount of, uh, that is really the hidden story here that no one wants to really talk about. Maybe just all tied into the incredible alien of our culture. When I think about the message we're getting, it's, you know, everyone's an individual, be a rugged individual, do your own thing, you know, be free, don't be constrained. And at the same time, get all of your desires met. Like you owe it to yourself and it's your right to get everything you want out of life. And maybe it's the internalization of those messages that cause men to act the way they do and women to act the way they do. I don't know. There's no sense of, um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't want to get too down on, on America. No, I was at a uh, dinner party the other night and I was talking to a woman and we were talking about men and is, you know, I'm raising three boys and it's really scary. And what does this mean? Because are men just inherently kind of worse? And she, she actually works as a high-end designer for very high-end weddings and people getting married at Versailles and stuff like that. And she just sort of said, well, not to minimize what's going on, but I deal with women nine to five who... I could write a memoir that would just completely undo you. It might be less criminal activity, but the sort of despicable entitlement with which I'm treated could fill many, many books. And so I was like, well, thank you for saying that because mm. I was about to just throw in the towel um, <laughs> and say I wish I was a woman. Dave, do you have uh, an announcement and- to make? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it does lead actually quite profoundly into the final thing we were going to talk about, which was coming from Mark Galley on Christianity Today, our friend who wrote a longer thing on substitutionary atonement. It doesn't get any more personal. By way of introduction, you see the intense accountability and consequence talk and judgment and law and the world really upping the ante when it comes down to the severity of law, but without any ability to account for the people who are condemned by that law. There's no grace. There's nothing to do with the guilt without trying to say it's not that big of a deal. And then you have Galley coming along and trying to talk about substitutionary atonement, which is, you know, a dirty word, just like, you know, snow is a dirty word in Charlottesville this past week. But he says, a bloody and violent event stands at the very center of our faith. And it's not just the event, but it's meaning that prompts many to recoil and discuss. Evangelicals more than most are deeply moved by the notion that Christ died for us on a cross, that he was a substitute who suffered in our stead, and that he endured a punishment we deserved. To be sure, this notion has been framed sometimes, I might say often, in crude and even pathological ways. But it remains a way of looking at the atonement that deeply moves millions and draws them in grateful love to the one who hung on that cross. They are grateful because they have, quote, an urgent sense of man's predicament, a mood so deep that it could never be completely articulated. The mood is despair, and the urgency comes from a foreboding. If the reason for this despair isn't addressed, one is doomed. The despair is grounded by guilt and shame for transgressions against divine law. He goes on to say, the modern conscience balks 
What type of universe is this in which everyday and relatively harmless behavior, lying, greed, pride, lust, and so forth, deserves eternal and irreversible damnation? Christians respond, this type of universe, and point to common experiences with very much the same dynamic. I mean, this is Dave talking, but this is the world we live in this week, especially. Relatively insignificant actions that result in horrific and lasting consequences. Sin must be paid for as a debt must be paid for. This is Mark again. Why this is the case, why the moral universe operates this way is hard to say. It's another deep mystery of life. But we first understand the nature of just punishment as children. Your sister repeatedly changes the channel you are watching on TV to watch what she wants. She's rude and unbending until your father steps in. An apology from her is all well and good, but you are not satisfied until your father adds that your sister can't watch TV for a week. Punishment is part of the solution to this problem, and if there is no punishment, you feel like justice has been cheated. You know, this is, again, the discussion that is going on right now. What are the consequences? What does the confession look like? Is it specific enough? You know, this is a very timely issue. You simply cannot be alive today and deny it. Anyway, back to Mark. He says, built into the very fabric of the universe is also the notion that one death can be accepted in place of another's, that the one death can redeem an otherwise hopeless situation. Again, we're tempted to think we've regressed to primitive religion, but once more, we look around to see this phenomenon all around us. It's a regular trope of storytellers who create Christ figures whose death liberate others. Sometimes the suffering and death of one key person, who's perceived as good and loving, transforms the lives and situations of others for the good. As the deaths of activists like Mahatma Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. suggest, there's no straight line, but there's clearly a positive relationship. A mysterious sense in which they endured the punishment for injustice that was deserved by others and that this event made a measure of healing possible. The reminder of other atonement models in the New Testament has been a good corrective for preachers who have limited their preaching to substitutionary atonement. Amen to that, right? Not everyone at every point in life will be moved by dynamics of guilt and shame, law and punishment, sin and substitution. A drug addict caught in the chains of addiction might better grasp the miracle of the crucifixion if the ransom model is expounded. Yet, a principal reason that preachers continue to rely on substitutionary atonement is precisely that it preaches. It is the one atonement model, more than the others, that remind us of the personal investment of God in each one of us. Where Christus Victor, for example, is a wonderful model to describe cosmic redemption, substitutionary atonement is about my salvation. Christ died for me, I might add, for what's happened to me and what I've done to others. It doesn't get any more personal than that. What do you think, guys? You know, I grew up in a church in Mississippi, an Episcopal church, and there wasn't a lot of this kind of preaching. There was good preaching, but it was like a lot of narrative, but it was good preaching. But my parents took me to Monday Thursday one year, which we hadn't really done much of. I think I wrote about that for the site. Anyway, I remember sitting there and you know, being a kid and they start stripping the altar and the lights dim and, you know, it's a pretty plain Protestant church. So there wasn't a lot to remove, but it was just sort of the darkness happening. And suddenly, and I don't know if it was the words of the liturgy or whatever that kind of rang in my head, but I realized in that moment that Jesus had died for me and was overcome and started crying, which was a little weird for my parents. But, you know, I think that was the first moment in my life that I was like, oh, like this is a truth. Right. You know, it wasn't something I felt like I experienced in a real way again until, to be honest with you, until Mockingbird, which I found in seminary or which found me. I mean, the way that Mark Galley says, you know, like it preaches and that's why people use it. I mean, I totally agree with that. I, when I was in seminary, 
at Yale Divinity School, I know I could be nice and just say when I was in seminary, but I do want to say that it was that seminary because, because it's important that we know that when we train people for the pulpit, we're not training them to preach this message. I mean, the few professors I had, I had one Protestant professor who brought atonement theology into class and people screamed him down. And I had another professor who talked about it and he was Catholic and he used medieval theology and he was just British enough that everyone gave him a pass. He also incidentally one time said in class that he would like to just set all the Protestants on fire on crosses out in the front yard. So he was a laugh a minute. That's hilarious. Yeah. Isn't it so funny? I got pregnant that semester and just told him I had morning sickness and never showed up. But anyway, seminary in a nutshell. But I mean, this stuff does preach. I mean, it preaches every time because People need to hear. And when I hear these sort of cosmic Christus Victor sermons, it's like, okay, it doesn't like feel like it impacts my life. Maybe I'm just super needy and like super childlike and maybe I'll just grow out of it. But so far that hasn't happened so far. I need to know that Christ has died for my sins on my behalf. I need to know that people who have done me wrong have been forgiven too. And I need to know that because it changes everything. Mm. So sorry, mm. question for you. Having gone to Yale Divinity School. Yes. Uh, Which is not as hard to get into as real Yale. Okay. To be clear. Okay. <laughs> Beyond the divine child abuse trope, what is it about atonement theology that people react so strongly against? Because sin is such a fundamental part of that. And to talk about sin in a deep way and to talk about low anthropology in a deep way undoes so much of what we hear in the social justice movement. It just does because it says, actually, we can't fix everything. Actually, we can't create the kingdom here on our own volition. Like, actually, people are going to starve and suffer. And it's deeply sad. And it makes Jesus weep. And we're not going to be able to fix every single situation. You know, I mean, it's no wonder that people ask, what's the average in ministry? It's less than five years. You're hearing this stuff at seminary. Oh, the victory of Christ. Like, just go out and be Jesus. Die on a cross. Be raised the next day. The Catholic seminary professor will burn you, you know, for free. And then you get out into church. I mean, for me, this theology is more, you know, aside from like my personal life, my preaching life, it's necessary for me to just function, you know, in church world. I mean, you know, RJ, I remember having a conversation with you early on when I started working at St. Martin's and you said to me, we were talking about, you know, people struggling in the pews and you you said something like you have to look out and remember that like everybody mm. is bound by their sin mm. once you get this stuff you don't unsee it yeah that article brought a few things to mind one you know as he was talking about the reality of the world that we live in and its brokenness it's sin it reminded me of francis bufford's amazing book on apologetic where he was talking about the campaign of kind of new atheists in buses and you know subways in in london and the atheist tagline was there's probably no god so stop worrying about it and enjoy your life and Spufford's reaction was, who is enjoying their life? <laughs> you know, who, who are these people? Like, no one is enjoying their life. Everything's a disaster. And I'm pretty sure that God is not the problem. And that sort of ties in what you were talking about, Sarah, just that what did Niebuhr say? You know, that sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. But we don't like to talk about, we don't want to talk about sin. I know people who have a tough time with substitutionary atonement theology, you know, 
people who have really suffered, like suffered abuse, um, and they maybe have a tough time with forgiveness. And they, I mean, I tend to do with guilt and shame, right? I feel, I feel guilty for what I've done, what I haven't done, what I'm doing, what I will do. But I don't struggle necessarily with anger or with a desire for justice or with woundedness or with someone having really done something terrible to me that I have a tough time getting over. So I'm really sympathetic to that and looking for a way for atonement theology to address not only people who feel themselves to have committed wrongs, but also those who feel themselves to have been wronged. You know, that how does Jesus bleeding and dying on the cross for our sins help me forgive someone else or help me deal with my anger, my confusion? And I have thought in the past, and I don't know, I'm sure if this is heretical, someone in Mockingbird land will let me know. I've almost imagined the cross sometimes as almost a divine apology for the brokenness of the world. I was with a couple this morning that are in the hospital, their baby is there and struggling, they've had a rough week. And I said to them, if you're feeling angry, if you're feeling confused, if you're feeling frustrated, you can take that to God. Because ultimately, I didn't say this to them, but ultimately this is his world. You know, he created it. He's responsible for it. He loves it. I do believe that he's sovereign over all of it. And the Bible, people certainly have no problem with going to God and being like, what are you doing? You know, like, what is the deal here? And in the cross, I almost see, I don't know, God being like, yeah, I'm taking responsibility for the world I've created. That on, on some level, every time life doesn't go the way that I want it to go. In some sense, I'm saying I could do better. I ought to be in charge. You know, God, you ought to be dead. To which God replies like too late, you know, you already killed me. Mm -hmm. You know, I already took responsibility for this mm -hmm. world. So maybe there's a way through atonement theology for people who are hurting, who need to cry out for justice and are, are angry to look at the cross and, and take all of that to the person who's ultimately responsible. I think that's really beautiful because it says, again, what kind of Fleming's book helps people see is that there are other models of the atonement. There are other things, there are other tools in the toolkit. And personally speaking, the substitutionary atonement model really speaks to me. I could echo what Sarah said. You know, if I was Aziz Ansari right now, a substitute would sound pretty good. A do-over, you know, slate wiped clean. And yet, I know that it's not the only one, and maybe there'll be different times in my life. And she talks about addiction. We go into the jail here locally, and you know, substitution sounds pretty good for people who've really sat in the defendant's chair in the courthouse. And yet, it's not the only one. And you know, maybe at the end of the day, what we're saying is that God's message is not sort of like here's atonement. It's the man on the mm. cross. You know, it's actually look to the cross. The Holy Spirit can take care of exactly how that's going to work out for you. I mean, I also, when I hear these critiques of substitutionary atonement, I'm thankful that I don't have the baggage that I know a lot of people do. I mean, sometimes you can see the response to it, the virulence with which people cannot stand this message is some way a measure of the damage that has been done by certain forms of evangelicalism basically. And I didn't grow up with that, really. I, I And so my subconscious doesn't kick in. There's some wounds that are too deep, and I yeah. want to acknowledge that. And I don't have to force it. But I also can say for myself that the substitutionary model really speaks to me on a very deep gut level, and I'm grateful for it. I'm more grateful 
for Jesus dying and rising than I am for the model of substitutionary atonement. So maybe these are just little distinctions here, and you don't want to put down everyone as being totally reactive, and yet there is some real reactivity going on when you hear people talk about cosmic child abuse. And, you know, it's funny, the people that I know here in town who grew up with no religion eat it up the substitutionary stuff. They're like, this, what? That's, that's incredible. But the people for whom it was used as a bludgeon, like God is watching every time you do such and such, you're pounding another nail in. I mean, they want to run screaming for the hills. And you're right, you can't blame them. So I don't know where we lead, but I know that as a culture, the atonement is something that takes sin, the consequences of the small, the big, it takes them very seriously. Mm. God weeps. Mm-hmm. God is nailed to a cross. The perpetrator and the person done unto. And yet there's this word of hope and a way forward in a way that I don't necessarily see. I, to have to make that stuff up completely from scratch, given what human nature, the immutability, as you say, of, of it, RJ, fills me with dread. <laughs> but <laughs> that keeps me running back to the cross, I, I guess. I think that there's two needs, right? There's forgiveness, but then there's also this deep need for things to be made right. And I don't know if I feel that in myself, but I will say, you know, when I listen to the news, <laughs> you know, when I hear <laughs> stories about things going on in our world, then I get a little fired up. I'm like, when is this going to be set right? Like, I'm tired of the abuse and the pain and the inequity. And so I feel that just it's not maybe as personal for me as it is for someone who really has experienced the consequences of sin in a hurtful way. But I do think that we have to remember that like part of the gift of this theology is that we hear the good news that Jesus suffers alongside us. And I think that's something that when I do hospital visits, I think of a lot. People talk about their suffering. And when I pray with them, you know, I always say, you know, Lord, you know how much this person has suffered because you are in it with them. And, you know. RJ and I were both at a meeting where we were learning sort of about how people process God, especially how people process God in a mentally healthful way. And that generally looks like you believing that God is an active part of your life. You know, I don't want to throw the whole Christus Victor thing under the bus because it's great and useful at certain moments, but it feels so celestial and like 3,000 miles north of me. And it does not Mm -hmm. feel like God is an actor in my life, like that God is moving in my life. And, um, you know, people who tend to have healthier relationships with religion see God that way. I mean, I think God suffers along with us. I think that's the good news for Aziz Ansari and, you know, this woman Mm. called Grace. Mm. Well, amen to that. Maybe that's the place to end. Thank you guys for talking about it. Well, we didn't, you know, solve all of the world's problems today, but I think we're getting closer. Next time. Next, Next time. time. <laughs> uh, just a note, I guess, before we end is that the New York City conference, all of the tiers for registration are now open. We would love to see you there. It's going to be amazing. And we really hope you can join us. A bunch of us will be there. And Tyler as well, that's coming up and it's going to be fantastic. I just can't get over what amazing stuff we have in store. And I don't just say that. So, Thank you for listening. Thank you, RJ and Reverend Condon. You guys are the greatest. No problem. <laughs> you guys are the, are the most non-single Thanks, people I know. Oh, great. That's Super. true. <laughs> no pressure. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. 
And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. 